This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is on the media's midweek podcast. I'm Brooke Gladstone, and I want to introduce you to my colleague, Nancy Solomon. She's WNYC's New Jersey specialist, and she's got quite the tale to tell. It's about a murder on a Jersey cul-de-sac that was never solved, and it involves some of the most powerful people in the state. It's even got a waterfront land deal. It's sort of like Chinatown meets American Hustle. It's a seven-episode podcast. We think you'll like it. So here's episode one. And if you're intrigued, you can follow along each week anywhere you get your podcasts. We were putting the final touches on this series when a news story went viral. The Jersey political world is still in a state of shock after a political consultant admitted his role in a murder-for-hire plot this week. Sean Cattle used two hitmen to murder former Jersey City Council candidate Michael Galdieri in 2014, and that bombshell... So, a guy who worked on campaigns for some of the biggest names in the state hired two hitmen to murder a rival political consultant. Hitmen, politics, and a payoff at a diner. While everyone was pointing out just how Jersey this was, my mind went to something quite different. This sounded a hell of a lot like the podcast I'm working on. This morning, the mystery deepens over the death of John and Joyce Sheridan, a prominent New Jersey couple with powerful connections and close friends of Governor Chris Christie. The first responders who came into the door of the Sheridan home early the morning of September 28th found what could only be described as a house of horror. In both cases, people involved in politics were stabbed to death and the room set on fire. And both crimes happened just four months apart in 2014. Suddenly, people are interested again in a case I've been focused on for two years. I've done little else but try to figure out what happened to John and Joyce Sheridan and why a case involving such a prominent figure was ignored by the highest levels of law enforcement and government. The Sheridan's funeral was held on a blustery, overcast day in October 2014. The line to enter the building snaked down the block, and the most powerful people in New Jersey came to pay their respects. The governor at the time, Chris Christie, was there, and so were three former governors, including the only woman ever elected governor of New Jersey, Christine Todd Whitman. It was not a small turnout. It was almost all of the assembly the Senate, 
And they all played the respects. And here it was to a guy who was never held the highest office, never held elective office. And yet you had all these political people there to, to stand up for them and for the family. At the Sheridan's memorial, there was an unsettling vibe because very few people knew how they had died. Nine one one, where is your emergency? Uh, yes, Meadow Run Drive in Skillman, New Jersey. Nine days before, just before sunrise on a Sunday morning, a neighbor had noticed smoke coming from the Sheridan's house. The first news report said they died in the fire. Then local detectives announced the fire had been deliberately set. Former Governor Whitman told me rumors were spreading and people didn't know what to think. Because we were still in those throes of, this is just impossible. The theories they're putting out there, what happened, this was just not the John and Joyce any of us knew. John Sheridan had worked at the highest levels of government for 40 years, first as a cabinet member and then as an advisor to several governors. And he'd been a lobbyist for one of the most prominent law firms in the state. Some 1,800 people attended the memorial. What was interesting, what was fascinating about it was the breadth of people who spoke, Republicans, Democrats, from their private life, to, and they were all personal. Those who spoke, it, they were very personal. And they were both sides of the aisle. They were a testament to the kind of people that John and Joyce were. This is Dead End, a New Jersey political murder mystery, episode one. I'm Nancy Solomon. I live here and cover the state for WNYC. And that's almost a full-time political corruption beat. John Sheridan was connected to some of the most powerful politicians and movers and shakers in the state. And that was enough to make me follow every detail of this story. The news reports became more and more confusing. First, it was a fire. Then it was intentionally set. Almost two months later, we learned they had actually died from a brutal knife attack. Then came the official conclusion. six o'clock. It has taken six months in all, but now the Somerset County prosecutor says the Cooper Health CEO John Sheridan did in fact kill his wife Joyce before stabbing himself and setting the couple's bedroom on fire. This news left me with more questions than it answered. What could have been going on in their lives that would have caused this highly regarded 72-year-old to kill his wife of 47 years? I'm going to try to answer that over the next seven episodes. And I'll follow a trail that raises questions about New Jersey's top law enforcement agencies and some of the most powerful people in the state. To start, I needed to know more about the Sheridans. So I drove down to the Jersey Shore to meet Joyce's best friend, Chris Stevens. She was waiting outside for me, standing on the corner so I wouldn't miss her street. Inside, she'd laid out pastries and coffee. This water and Thank all you. that. And then I, I nice. got you some... Uh, That's very sweet. And so it's good. <laughs> we moved down in 2016. It's just the two of us and our new dog, Angus, who was a handful. Uh, but it's The last time Chris saw Joyce 
was only a day and a half before she died. She would call and she'd say, uh, Chris, call me. Let's go to lunch. They had lunch at the Tiger's Tail, a pub about five minutes from their homes. And um, just had a, a nice, usual lunch with Joyce. Laughed. That yeah, was fun. I, I always look forward to going to see her. I didn't ever want to, you know, to have to cancel on something because I enjoyed her so much. She was like a sister. You know, I, I have two sisters. Well, she was another sister. Chris was a social worker, Joyce a public school teacher, and both husbands were lawyers who were involved in government. Both couples had four kids about the same age. The two families lived in the suburbs not far from Princeton, Joyce in Skillman and Chris just down the road in Belmead. I really appreciated her humor. Um, she was a very independent, but such a good friend. She would knit me... Um, scarves and, and hats, and I couldn't do anything with my fingers. I'm a mess. So she um, sort of took care of me in that way. Joyce was also tough. She always got the troublesome kids, you know. They always put them in her class because she was so good and could handle anybody, and she didn't take any guff. Chris was just back from church on that Sunday morning when her husband came in to tell her the Sheridans had died. She was stunned. And then the detectives decided it was a murder-suicide. I, I don't feel comfortable talking about this because I don't believe it. And do, neither does Bob. And neither do any of our kids or our friends. Any, anybody I know does not believe that that happened. What about it makes you feel uncomfortable and you don't need to say, but... Because um... I don't believe it. And I, I think it's a false accusation and that this family has to suffer like this. And then to bring it back up again. Why'd you bring it back up again? Because something came up and you have to investigate it. And I understand that. But I don't have anything else to say except that I miss her and I miss John. And uh, you mentioned that you talked about kids and grandkids. Was there anything on her mind that was bothering her? I know where you're going, but no. I, I'm definitely not. I know you have to ask the question, but no. She, uh, I think she would have said to me. Detectives think John Sheridan murdered his wife and set their bedroom on fire before taking his own life, apparently to cover up what he had done. But Chris and Joyce were close, and Joyce never mentioned a single problem about her marriage to Chris. I heard this a lot from neighbors, friends, colleagues, family members. I couldn't find a single person who could tell me about a problem in their marriage. She's on Meadow Run? Yeah. The Sheridans lived on Meadow Run Drive in Skillman, New Jersey. It's a suburban neighborhood that was carved out of farmland in the 1970s. 
The house was a center hall colonial, you know, those rectangular houses that have the front door in the center and the slotted wooden shutters framing each window. And it was on a large lot that was set back from the street. Thanks, cold. I love the cul-de-sac. It's just so Jersey. <laughs> I drove out to Skillman with producer Rebecca Ibarra. Why? Why is it classic There's so many. It's just so like a suburban thing that was built in the... First, we went to a neighbor who lived three houses down from the Sheridans. I wonder if people felt a lot less safe here after that happened. Marcia Stencil and her husband are some of the first people who moved here when the street was first built. Hi. Hi. I'm Nancy Solomon. We came in 1977, and there were two houses besides ours, and the Sheridans came the end of that summer. They had two children at that point, and I think one on the way. And By all accounts, it was an idyllic time and place to grow up. You wouldn't have even thought anything of just stepping in and saying, you know, Joyce, you here, and going in the house. And the kids roamed free. It was always called the Sheridan Boys, and this neighborhood was very active with uh, bicycles and children going down to what we call Those are kids. About 40 children between the ages of one, or under one, and 15. This is Judy and Charles D. Domenico. We moved in May 30th, 1980. They lived across the street from the Sheridans. And the little boys would come over and want to exchange smelly stickers with my daughters, <laughs> which was the big fad with children at the time. They would be like bees in a horde on their bikes up and down the street. You know, they were just, it was, it was a lovely neighborhood for children. No one can remember there ever being so much as a burglary on Meadow Run Drive. Local police records show they were only called to the Sheridan house once in 37 years when Joyce fell down and injured her hip. In fact, until their horrible deaths, Marcia Stencil told me most people in the neighborhood didn't even lock their doors. And that detail would ultimately be a problem for the investigation. Because there were no signs of forced entry, the detectives assumed there was no intruder. We'll be right back. memories of your parents and their relationship with each other at that time when you were a kid growing up in the house? <laughs> they were always together, so... Mark Sheridan uh, is the oldest of their four sons. At the time of his parents' death, he was the personal lawyer for Governor Chris Christie and also represented the state Republican Party. When we weren't involved in sports and they weren't running us from one thing to the next, they would be out looking at antiques, going to auctions, going to flea markets. They love to antique and spend time together. For a couple of years, Mark and I would talk on the phone about the case. He had tried to solve it, but forced himself to walk away. I had a busy litigation practice, and for the better part of two years, I spent, you know, seven to seven doing my day job, and then eight to three in the morning doing this. Um, and at some point in time, my wife stepped in and said, you know, you can't do this stuff. You can't be, first of all, you can't be sitting up down here 
with crime scene photos out, your kids around. So it's not very smart. And, uh, you know, it's not healthy. You can't live like this. So, you know, she kind of really brought me around to, you got to move on. You got to, you got to give up a little bit. Otherwise, you're, you're going to be all consumed by this. But I'm not helping with that very much, no, am I? No, um, <laughs> I no, Mark I, lives about an hour from where he grew up. You can't even see the neighbors where he lives. It's a big house on a large piece of property. This is a beautiful room. Is this house old or built to look old but new? 1840s it was built. I love that. I forget what those are called, the windows that open like that. Case Case. Windows, I guess that's right, yep. The guy who remodeled. I had brought something I wanted to show Mark. Oh, geez, where'd you find that? An audio recording of his father I had dug up on YouTube. So John had served in the cabinet to Governor Tom Kane. And in the tape I found, John is telling a story about applying for a job when he's ready to leave the administration. And he talks about Joyce. I brought it along and played the tape for Mark. Here's his dad, John. Hey, right. So long story short, I, uh, after several interviews with Riker Dancing... Um, and I remember one where I was going up to meet Pete Peretti, who was a senior partner, one of the name partners, on a Sunday afternoon. And this was about my sixth or seventh interview. And <laughs> Joyce, Joyce wise guy that she is, she says, uh, who are you going to meet with, the cleaning lady today? <laughs> that sounds exactly like my mother, right? That was exactly the type of thing that she would have said. She was the no-nonsense um, Tough one in the family, smart, a uh, bit of a smart ass. <laughs> she was, <laughs> she was fantastic. Um, and then, how would you describe your dad in terms of his personality and the way he was? He was always the easygoing one. Um, you know, not not one to get angry a lot. Really laid back. Uh, you know, serious. He, if there was something that he wanted to know about, he would spend weeks on end getting to know it until he felt like he was an expert on it. Look, in, in every relationship, there's one boring person and one crazy person. And my father was the boring person, my mother was the crazy person. <laughs> and then, I mean, you pretty much followed in your father's footsteps, if that's, is that fair to say? I don't think that's fair to say. I'm not even close. I'm more like my mother in some respects. I have a little more fight in me than he did. So, I, I went But his home. dad was really the one who got him into politics. I was 29 years old. My father called me and said, nobody else is dumb enough to do this. Uh, you might be dumb enough to do it. Republicans were looking for a lawyer to stop the Democratic governor from borrowing from the state budget. Mark won the case and became the Republican go-to guy for a decade. His father's political roots were very different. When I was very young, six years old, uh, uh, we lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is from the same interview I had played for Mark. It's from an oral history series about New Jersey governors at Rutgers University. John Sheridan was born in 1942, and his first memory of politics often surprised fellow Republicans. I remember handing out leaflets for Tip O'Neill's first campaign. <laughs> Tip O'Neill was the Democratic Speaker of the House, who was a larger-than-life character and hated by Republicans. I guess the next thing I remember is I... I remember listening to both the Democrat and Republican conventions almost in total on the radio in 1952. This was at the age of 10. 
He was the oldest of six and moved to New Jersey before high school. My father got transferred down to uh, Kearney. He was in the uh, meatpacking business. Um, and uh, I grew up in Bloomfield, went to Catholic school, and then I went to Seton Hall High School, and then I went to St. Peter's College, and then stayed in uh, New Jersey for law school. Sheridan was a big influence on his younger brother, Peter, who's been a federal judge in Trenton since 2005. John was always my big brother. Whenever I needed it, had an issue, I'd always talk to John about it. Tell me a little bit about that, your upbringing. Was it more blue-collar or...? Uh, we had six kids, so there was not a lot of money around. We all worked our way through college. I don't know if we'd consider us blue-collar or middle-class or whatever it is, but it was, we, we got by every day, that's all I know. John Sheridan worked at the Attorney General's office, then for the governor, and eventually he was appointed the Transportation Commissioner in the 1980s. He's credited with turning industrial rail lines into one of the largest commuter rail systems in the country, New Jersey Transit. More than 300,000 people commute from New Jersey into New York, and many take the train system that John helped create. In the Rutgers Oral History, Sheridan is asked about another victory, how he convinced Democratic legislators to create a gas tax, even if it meant Republicans would get the credit for fixing the state's highways. I got on a road, and I went, and I actually saw uh, 117 of the 120 legislators all in their offices. And in the end, uh, while I think there was uh, a lot of wringing of the hands, really didn't want to turn over $3 billion to, the, to this Republican governor to uh, start uh, spending on transportation projects, in the end, it passed both houses unanimously. Uh, nobody could not be for it. He was persuasive, but nothing like the kind of people who usually rise up in the rough-and-tumble world of Jersey politics. I don't think he ever raised his voice to me in all my, all my years of knowing John. Mary Kay Roberts was hired by John Sheridan at Riker Danzig, the New Jersey law firm. She worked with him closely for a decade in the Trenton office. And we had some very stressful situations, and he taught me that. It's, uh, you know, almost like, what's the point in yelling? You know, where does it get you? They talked or emailed almost every day, even after he left the firm. I consider John to be my second father. And when ultimately I got this news, um, you know, it's one of those situations where I can see where I was teaching my daughter how to ride a bike, and I collapsed. Um and I couldn't get over that this had happened to John and Joyce. It's not that John Sheridan didn't ever get his hands dirty. He was a lobbyist. And what is that business if not influence peddling? Sheridan worked for and among the powerful and wealthy. Government connections made him a valuable asset— and he wasn't above using those connections. In the late 90s, after leading Governor Christine Todd Whitman's transition team, he got hired to lobby her. 
But in political circles on both sides of the aisle, Sheridan maintained a sterling reputation. There were never any hints of corruption around him, which is saying something in a state known for its political scandals. I would say he was sort of in but not of the Tratton milieu in the sense that uh, he worked in it and he understood it, but he never became captive to it. John Farmer was an old friend of John Sheridan. He runs a political research center at Rutgers University. Tell me a little bit about your background, because it is illustrious in the world of New Jersey politics. So, yes, I'm a, I'm a has-been in every sense of the word. <laughs> uh, I have been uh, dean of the law school. Um, I served as a senior counsel to the 9-11 Commission. I was New Jersey attorney general. Uh, prior to that, and um, uh, chief counsel to the Governor Whitman, and a... Um, Farmer and Sheridan crossed paths working in Trenton, and they struck up a friendship. I, I think one of the, the reasons people liked him was that he was so unassuming um, in his demeanor. Uh, at the same time, you know, really smart. Sheridan was a Republican from the days when New Jersey was a swing state, and Republicans were centrists and really not all that different from their Democratic counterparts. Frankly, we'd have breakfast, you know, at the Princetonian diner, and we would laugh at what was going on. I mean, that, that, it was very entertaining um, because there is a lot about politics that is just comical. And, and he, I think we both found the same things funny, and that, that's one of the reasons we stayed in touch. John Farmer was a bit mystified when, at the age of 63, John Sheridan took his reputation and a very large Rolodex, and became the CEO of Cooper University Hospital in Camden. This meant he was joining forces with a powerful political figure in New Jersey, George E. Norcross III. He's a silver-haired, wealthy insurance executive who's never been elected to office. But he runs a political operation that helps candidates get elected, which means he has a lot of influence. That's gotten him into trouble a number of times. In fact, when John Farmer was the state attorney general, his prosecutors set up a small-town city councilman to wear a wire and capture Norcross threatening that official. Were you surprised when he went to work for George Norcross? Uh, well, he, he never asked my advice about that. Um, I was surprised, but, um, you know, he didn't ask my advice, so I never gave it. Uh, I think the people at Riker were surprised. Riker Danzig, the law firm where Sheridan was a partner. I know his mindset was that Camden's a small enough city that they could actually accomplish a lot. Camden is directly across the Delaware River from Philadelphia, and it's one of the poorest cities in America. I know, John, he wanted to do something like that as he closed out his career. So the last time I had breakfast with him was, I think, about a month before he died. And um, what he said to me was that he and George were not getting along. He didn't go into specifics about what the issues were. He just said, we really aren't talking that much. And um, he thought that was an odd situation. He didn't really, didn't really confide. And, and I never really pushed. So John Sheridan, the CEO of Cooper Hospital, wasn't talking much to his boss, the chairman of the board. And whatever that conflict was about, it was happening right before the Sheridans died.
George Norcross spoke at the Sheridan's memorial. Bob Stevens, the husband of Joyce's close friend Chris, was taken aback. That was the first time I saw Norcross, and that was the first time I said, geez, John was dealing with Norcross there. I didn't, I didn't know that. And I knew Norcross's name, and probably not in a good sense. Bob watched as his wife offered a eulogy for Joyce Sheridan. He had been an assistant attorney general, so he knew what to expect when his wife told everyone at the memorial that she had had a three-hour lunch at the Tiger's Tail with Joyce just a day and a half before her death. And I thought, I'm sitting there right behind her because she needed my support, especially when she saw Kane Christie, you know, and everybody there, and Christy Whitman. Two former governors and the current one. She was sitting next to Christy Whitman. They got along great. But as soon as she said, when I had lunch with Joyce two days before she was killed, and I don't know if I even remembered what she said after that, I said, well, she just sealed your fate. You're going to be brought down and questioned, not for, as a suspect, but for information. So after the memorial, Bob canceled the rest of his work day and drove his wife home. He was certain that detectives would be waiting for them on their doorstep. And nobody was there. And I would think that they'd want to see what Joyce said. Did she complain about John's, you know, that they weren't getting along? Or With a three-hour lunch, uh, Joyce probably wouldn't have said much, but she might have said something. But they didn't know. Joyce could have said, oh, John's been crazy. He's on medication. He's nuts, you know. that he was, Maybe he's not feeling well and he's hallucinating. But you don't know it. So, you, so you, you follow the leads. Never did it. And right away, from the lack of contact by the prosecutor's office, I knew right away that, that uh, they didn't do a good investigation. On the next episode of Dead End, we'll try to find out what happened. The number and type of wounds that uh, Mrs. Sheridan suffered were consistent with uh, a rage type of attack. So my parents died Saturday night, Sunday morning. We met with the prosecutor's office on Tuesday, and that's when things started to go off the rails. That's coming up in episode two. This is Dead End, a New Jersey political murder mystery. I'm Nancy Solomon. Dead End was reported and produced by me, with Emily Botin, Karen Frillman, Rebecca Ibarra, David Lewis, Jeff Pillitz, and Adam Civil. Music and sound design by Jared Paul. This is WNYC Studios. Learn more at deadendpodcast.org. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.